Germany may well now be the most influential member of the European Union, even if it doesn't want to be. American or British newspapers ask Germany to show some leadership. Well, the translation of the word leader in German is Führer, which was the title that Adolf Hitler assumed. Germany does not wish to be the leader of Europe. Coming up, guides from Berlin tell us what Germans are thinking about their place in the world. And they'll help you plan a great vacation, which could turn into a much longer adventure in Germany. People from New York City, Kansas or whatever, they come to live in Berlin. It's still cheap, thanks to the good old socialist days. And we quiz best-selling travel writer Patricia Schultz on her favorite thousand places to see on a great American road trip from the East Coast. New York City skyline with our new Freedom Tower. When I see that cityscape, I get goosebumps. To the Pacific Coast Highway. I call it the American Dream Drive. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Whether you're itching to explore the old world or the new, we've got you covered in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Author Patricia Schultz just scratches the surface on the immense variety of places and experiences you can find on a road trip across America with the all-domestic version of her Thousand Places to See Before You Die series. She joins us just a little later in the hour. Let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves with a closer look at Germany. In many ways, it really is the heart of Europe. After a rocky 20th century, Germany has become a country that knows how to make things work. With a close eye on the lessons of history, Germans are making human rights a priority. They're the second largest foreign aid donors in the world after the United States. And Germany's dynamic cities and fairy tale scenery, complete with castles and cathedrals, can be accessed by an efficient transportation system that pulls it all together. To help make a great getaway in Germany this year, we're joined by three German tour guides to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Holger Zimmer works as a producer at Culture Radio in Berlin when he's not guiding visitors around his country. Carolina Marburger was raised as a country girl in rural Germany, but has made Berlin her home now for many years. And Fabian Reuger was raised in the Rhineland, witnessed the fall of the wall when he lived in Berlin, and he now takes Americans around his home country for a living. Carolina, Holger, Fabian, welcome. Thanks for having us, Rick. I know you're basically, you live in Berlin now, but what's your story in, in Germany, uh, Holger? Yeah, my background basically is in journalism, so I work in radio, that's what I do all year round, but I do tours, so that's okay. what I do for a living. And, and you're a Berlin, a Berlin guide. I'm Berlin guide as well, yes, mm -hmm. I do tours right there. Carolina, where are you from and what's your story? Well, I grew up in the middle of Germany, so of what formerly was West Germany, mm -hmm. um, in a small village, very small village, very countryside, far away from any bigger city or highway. And then after finishing high school, I desperately had to go somewhere where not everyone is acquainted with my parents on a first-name basis. So <laughs> I had to go to Berlin. That was furthest away and studied history there for a long, long time. Oh, okay, you're in Berlin now. I'm in Berlin now and uh, because I need to bump up my PhD scholarship at some point and I started tour guiding then and fell in love with it. That fell in love with here. tour guiding. Yes. Very cool. Yes. And Fabian Reuger, where are you from and, and uh, what's your heritage? I grew up in the Rhineland, so the far west of Germany, west mm -hmm. of the Rhine, which... Uh, the people who lived there consider the really good part of Germany because it was the part that was touched by the Romans when they came up there. The Romans did, of course, not go to the eastern side of the Rhine. And uh, to this day, if you live on the west of the Rhine, you call the east of the Rhine side the foul side. That was the barbarians. The barbarians. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> but we and all then I moved ended up to in West Berlin, Berlin in uh, 1987 to start studying. And so uh -huh. I lived in Berlin when the wall fell, wow. which was fantastic. And that drew me into history. So I began studying history, which strangely lured me away from Berlin. So I actually moved to California to do a PhD in uh -huh. European history. 
And I moved back to Berlin and then saw the change that happened in that city. Berlin has changed, I think, reasonable to say, more than any great city in Europe in the last generation. This is a tumultuous time in Europe with the EU, with Britain voting to go away, with uh, refugees, with some financial crises. Germany dominates the EU, is quite the leader of the EU economically. And uh, what's the feeling right now from Germany about how the EU is going uh, and, and Germany's role in the EU? Well, I think there's a lot of anxiety also in Germany. I think that if you ask several Germans, there was, of course, even among our society, it's a bit of a question of age and background. But basically, I think many people are feeling quite European. Um, they might feel sort of asked too much to be the leading force, which they think they didn't ever sign up for or ask for, and somewhat be perceived sort of in a way that they, particularly our history sort of has taught us not to dominate again. And basically, that's why many people are a bit unsure what this is. But I think many people have asked me if you think that the Germans would do what the Brits just did, if they would opt out of the European Union, and I really think that would never happen. I really think that the Germans are really bound, as much as they are critical of certain things uh -huh. in the European Union, I think it's Germans the do Germany. think... Yeah. I've known people that are critical, and I think there's good reasons to be critical and questioning certain things in the EU, but I do not think that they would go as far. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you look at the map, like, we're right in the center of things, not like we're the center of the universe, but just like we're in the middle, like, surrounded by neighbors, and we got to work with them, and we, we like to work with them, and that's that's the good idea about the European yeah. Union, to say, hey, let's, we had so many wars in history, like, centuries and centuries ago, and now we say, let's work together with France, mm -hmm. and the Netherlands, and Poland, our big neighbor in the East. What a concept. So this is a beautiful, youthful approach to peaceful coexistence. Germany, without trying to be the dominant factor, sort of by default because of many Strong reasons. Strong economy, yeah. Strong yeah. economy. And uh, everybody knows German and French economies woven together is good for peace. Britain has chosen to leave. That leaves Europe a little more cohesive, you could say. And it's interesting that you, you have that outlook. Fabian, when you think about... Uh, the future of the EU and Germany, just briefly, are, are you feeling good about it or do you feel like there's a existential challenge for the EU? I think there's no doubt that there is a major challenge ahead. I think it can be overcome. Uh -huh. I think the majority of Germans, and that's part of this conundrum that we talked about, do not want Germany to be the bully of Europe. Uh, right. But Germany is in the position of having the economic dominance, and that creates this conundrum. Uh, Germany does not want to lead for a very particular reason when American or British newspapers ask Germany to show some leadership. Well, the translation of the word leader in German is Führer, which was the title that Adolf Hitler assumed. Germany does not wish to be the leader of Europe because it wants Europe to be democratic and therefore the decisions must be made in consensus. That's a very sensitive leadership role to say, okay, we're the most capable, we're the most wealthy, we could be the natural leader, but Come on, you guys, let's do this together. Yeah, it's a community. It's a union that's made of, like, small countries with their own ideas, like all the new uh, member states that joined and they were in the former Eastern Bloc. They were part of the Soviet Union. And now they're part of Western Europe. And they always wanted to be, like Bulgaria. I remember I was in Bulgaria before they joined, and they said, don't forget us. You know, you think we're down in the, in the farther southeast. No, but we are <laughs> European, too. And that's part of the fabric of Europe as we speak. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Germany, and we're joined by three German tour guides, Holger Zimmer, Fabian Reuger, and Carolina Marburger. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Rich is calling from Miller Place in New York. Hey, Rich, thanks for your call. 
Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm planning a trip to Germany, and I'm not sure if I want to finish up the last two spots, Dresden and Berlin. I was thinking about going to Prague. Can you give me an idea, you know, some positives about Dresden and Berlin that might sway me in staying on the itinerary that had started? Well, with? you know, this is such a good question, Rich. And, of course, most people know about Prague and Berlin, but Dresden is the unknown town that is uh, something worth considering. I'm going to let each of our guides share just a, a little bit of their impression of uh, Dresden. We'll start with Holger. Yeah, Dresden to me is, is very dear because I visited it first in the early 90s when it was still completely run down and actually still the burden of the war was still visible. It's completely back on track. It has been renovated and it is a city that still has this amazing power of the Baroque city, of the the castles, the palaces, the artwork, you have wonderful paintings, painting galleries, you have this amazing view, the river runs right through it, there's mm -hmm. a bridge going through it, and there's, like, you still see the panorama of what the landscape painters in the 1800s would see and paint. You can go and compare it in the gallery, and then you go out, have a coffee, out on the terrace, and you see the same view with the same buildings. It's it's magical. So, Dresden, I would recommend to go. Canaletto, the famous landscape artist, actually painted the beautiful... Absolutely. And, and Dresden is called the Florence on the Elba, the Elba River. It's got a former military rampart that is now supporting a terrace, which is just a people-friendly walk. Carolina, why would Dresden be called... Florence on the Elba? Well, because of its utter beauty, of course, created mostly by August the Strong, this beautiful Baroque city, whose part I mostly love are the churches, actually. Of course, the famously restructured Church of Our Lady. The the so that yeah. was such mm. an emotional reconstruction that was, of course, destroyed in the um, rural air raids. However, my personal favorite is actually the Church of the Cross, which was ruined and has been reconstructed in the 50s. And uh -huh. it's a very raw and uh, completely different and interesting also is the Catholic Court Church, which is, of course, different from the otherwise Protestant others. Yeah. That was a place where they had the processions inside because the Protestants would otherwise get angry outside. Now, this was the capital of Saxony, right? And, Indeed. And, and ruled by the Wetten dynasty for centuries. Were they primarily Catholic? Well, they had to be Catholic because of the Polish uh, kingdom. So he was kingdom of, of Saxony and Poland then yes, together. Yes, indeed. Uh -huh, okay. And therefore, Catholicism, of course, was relevant. Fabian, when I think of Dresden, it seems like a city that's it's all black to me, and it's just like it was baked. And I think about how it was literally baked in the firestorm in 1945, right? Uh, Tell us about the tragic end of World War II in Dresden. The uh, Allies, and particularly uh, the British, thought that Dresden was the last city they hadn't yet reached with Air Force. There were a few industrial installations near Dresden, which they initially intended to bomb, but the actual bombing run ended to be creating a firestorm. What's a firestorm? A firestorm is a particular kind of bombardment in which you create just enough heat so that you create a huge plume of fire that will actually uh, suck so much air in that people will get drawn into it. And it literally destroys uh, the city and burns it to the ground. The British had discovered this by accident during bombing Hamburg in 1943, and then they began using it as a technique. Uh, and Dresden was an example. The problem that was that during the bombing night, additionally, refugees, civil refugees from the east, were actually camping in the streets that night. So the, the number of casualties was particularly high for a bombing raid of this sort. And uh, what made everything worse was that the Nazis right after used it as an enormous propaganda victory for them against the West, claiming that in all of the innocent, just all the, yes, the innocent, uh, the numbers uh, were then much exaggerated, but they were bad enough. And in a much happier vein today, on the Elba, we've got these uh, historic steamboats. 
going along to the Sächsische Schweiz, the Saxonian Switzerland, a wonderful natural park where you can go climbing, hiking, bivouacking, going out. That's a nature area close by to this wonderful, very cultural Nicknamed city. Nicknamed the Switzerland of Saxony? That's indeed. Wow. So, Rich, that's. I just wanted to make sure you understood to give Dresden a fair shake. It's To answer your question, Prague is a wonderful city. If uh, Prague is the gateway to Eastern Europe and Probably everybody here would love to have a couple of days in, in Prague. Uh, it's quite touristy, but it's just really nice. Uh, Berlin is the happening city in Germany. used to be Munich that everybody went to, but now I think most people think Berlin is the most rewarding major city to go to. And halfway between Prague and Berlin, you've got a beautiful stop in Dresden. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. appreciate you helping me out. There's more of your calls for our German guides in just a minute at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Later in the hour, Patricia Schultz plays a word association game with us on the thousand important places she recommends to see in the U.S. and Canada. The domestic version of her best-selling guide has been updated with regional listings and thematic checklists to take you to great scenic views and to experience living history sites from the Navajo Nation to Old Savannah. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Germany is our focus right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Tour guides Fabian Reuger, Carolina Marburger, and Holger Zimmer are taking your calls at 877-333-RICK to help you plan a memorable trip to Germany and to help the rest of us better understand their country as it plays an increasingly central role as the political and economic engine of Europe. And David's on the line in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. David, thanks for calling. Well, thank you, Rick. I'm a retired high school principal, and I've always taken students on exchange trips over to Europe We have uh, two schools sending students over to Frankfurt, which is a new sister city for Philadelphia. My question would be, what can I tell the parents about easing some of their concerns about their children traveling to Germany in light of the things that have happened in, in the recent past? I've got some thoughts on that, but I'm going to let my guides share from Germany to America what people might think if they're nervous about the uh, specter of terrorism. Holger. I guess we all kind of are shaken by what's happening, like all over Europe, but all over the world, basically. But the thing is, uh, let's face it, you know, we still travel. I'm from Berlin. We had the Christmas market incident. But hey, people do still go to Christmas markets. People, mm -hmm. it, it hasn't changed the style of what we do in Berlin. That's what and, I think. And David is a principal who's committed to helping his kids better understand the world. And uh, I can imagine his frustration when parents, because they love their kids so much, are not comfortable with this adventure. And David may know that statistically those kids are safer going to Europe than they are staying home. You can try to help people stop confusing fear and risk. I just think it's so important that people keep on traveling for so many reasons. For one thing, it's safer now from a risk of terrorism on the road than it was 20 years ago when there were more people killed by terrorists in Europe. But today we have 24-7 news that makes it entertainment. Without trying, I guess, what they do is they reward the terrorists by making their little bombs become really big bombs because we stop traveling and we we're less likely to better understand the world. David, I, I just wish there was some way we could have people recognize that terrorism is tragic, but it, from a risk, if you love your kids' point of view, it's, 
it's just as dangerous as car safety on the freeways. I mean, it's that's true. And and we when we talk to the parents, we talk to them about. And we also talk to the students about being aware of their surroundings. You know, the same thing we talk about when we're taking the students to Center City, Philadelphia. But mm-hmm. it's it's one of those issues that you said it's important for our young people. Mm-hmm. To, to see the world and to understand what the world is about. And these exchanges where they stay with families, this is not where they're staying in a hotel and they're going on a tour bus. Mm-hmm. They're traveling public transportation back and forth, staying with families. It's really a tremendous opportunity. We've been yeah. doing this since 1990. David, you've got a mission, and thank you for your leadership in helping kids get out there and uh, make friends with the rest of the world. You're preaching to the choir, but it's, <laughs> it's good to hear <laughs> and hear the terms that I could actually use with the parents. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. Well, best wishes, David. And, and uh, whenever I think of service people in our country, I just think teachers are the ones that are so important right now. If we care about national security, we need to educate our kids and have them comfortable with this beautiful planet. Okay, well, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Michael's on the line in Denver, Colorado. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for taking my call. What uh, my wife and I like to do is uh, follow your advice about getting to the back door, and what we really do is find places that are are not in a lot of guidebooks. We uh, like to stay on farms where we can really get in touch with the people and the culture. Just for one example, we stayed in the uh, Black Forest in an apartment with a, a full kitchen, and private bathroom for $37 a night. So you you also get in touch with the culture, but you save a lot of money. What we found interesting on this uh, trip was that the lady of the house baked 40 loaves of bread in a wood-fired oven, which was phenomenal. She showed us her quote-unquote refrigerator that was just a, a sort of a cabinet, a wooden cabinet in the kitchen that had spring water flowing through the bottom of it to keep it cool. It would flow through the bottom and out into a 300-year-old uh, trough uh, on the uh, right on the outside. So were you staying in a farmhouse, like a bed and breakfast? Yes, yes, yes. yes. This was right next to their house. They had built a, an additional building, and in that building they had this apartment. You know, we saw the cows, we saw them feeding the cows, uh, we talked to them about their garden. What is also interesting in these farm situations, where we've stated many of them, is this multi-generational. So you have the grandparents that are not, you know, shoved off into the old folks' home. The grandparents, the parents, the kids, the, you know, it's, it's like three or four generations that you get to meet uh, face-to-face and learn from them and see how they live. Was this actually a bed and breakfast you booked, like, through Airbnb or something like that, or how did you find this place? No, no, no. You, you, you find these. There are different regional websites, and some of them are in German only, but this was a regional website for the Black Forest that is for farms. Let me get uh, some comments from our guests about that. Thanks so much for this uh, reminder that you can get away from the big cities and and not necessarily go to where your guidebooks tell you to go, but have a countryside experience staying on a farm with three generations right there and uh, have your fresh-baked bread pull out of the river stream-cooled box out back. Fabian, can you tell us uh, a little bit about an option you might recommend, you're from the Rhineland area, of actually getting away from the towns and staying on a farm? I mean, they're beautiful opportunities like this today because people have objects of real estate that they really want to make something out of that you know couldn't be rented out in the past. There are places we can rent little castles. 
which is gorgeous. I've myself stayed with friends for a week in a windmill in uh, Lower Saxony on the countryside. So you've been in this beautiful 18th century windmills. There are places where you can stay in tree houses now. And a lot of these are just available on regular German websites. I completely am for that, being a country girl. This sounds like a very fortunate uh, find, um, yeah. Michael. And I would always think that particularly Bavaria, the Black Forest, or possibly the northern, because the northern, northern farms are the large farms. As you're driving around, I notice there's some signs that say Farienwohnung and mm-hmm. other signs say Zimmerfrei. What's the difference between that, Holger? It's just Zimmerfrei simply means there is room available, whatever kind of shape or form that is. Uh-huh. And Ferienwohnung is kind of a kind of pension, but more like you cook yourself. That's so it's it. like a week-long stay rather could than be a that, night stay. Could be that, but it could also be like one okay. night as well. And it's, it's actually great to know that not everyone goes to like Hamburg or Munich, which which is great, but you actually Germans do that as well a lot. Where would you recommend? Uh, Michael went to the Black Forest. That's one of the obvious places to go if you want rural countryside culture. If I want time off from the big city, we'd go straight north, basically to the Baltic Sea, go to a beautiful little island called Hiddensee. Hidden Sea. It's only available like by ferry. You can only How go. How do you spell that? H i d d e n. Hidden, as in hidden, and then Z, as in lake. S e e. Ah. It's a beautiful, tiny, tiny island. No cars there. That makes it very nice. special. So you get there by ferry and you completely can turn off. You just kind of put your feet in the water. There's like, you know, horses and carts, a lot of bikes around. Relax and you don't have bus, you don't have cars, you don't have traffic. I'm afraid the typical American visitor in Germany only sees cities. The smallest town they're going to see is something on the Rhine, uh, maybe Rotenburg. And it's nice to, especially if you have a car, to get out and explore the countryside. I'll be spending some time in the Black Forest this summer, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Carolina Marburger, Fabian Reuger, and Holger Zimmer are guiding us to the highlights of Germany right now on Travel with Rick Steves. They're taking your calls at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Patricia emails us from Germany. And she writes, I'm an American who's been living and working in Germany for the past six years. I'd love to encourage people to visit the lesser-known cities, towns, and attractions in Germany. Examples, Dinkelsbühel instead of Rotenburg, Lübeck, Mecklenburg, West Pomerania, Rhine castles like Suneck and Pfalzgrafenstein instead of Neuschwanstein. Well, Patrick, that is so wise to remind American travelers that there are hundreds of sites for every famous one that all the Americans are going to go to see. Holger, do you have a sense in, in Carolina yeah. and Fabian? What's a, I, I am so happy site? that somebody <laughs> is mentioning Lübeck. <laughs> Lübeck! Because it is one of my mm. all-time favorite cities. The town of Thomas Mann, who's a great uh, German poet, is a UNESCO World Heritage City. Yes, it did also get bombed, but it was perfectly restored in its classical Hanseatic League red brick style beautiful churches, the old city gate used to adorn the old 50 German marks uh, bill. Oh, Every yes. German knows it. Lübeck, um, up in the north, uh, it's got this Hanseatic sort of uh, venerable stately nature. Yeah. And it used to be almost a superpower in the uh, 12th to 15th century as part of the Hanseatic League. And of course today you cannot sense that anymore because it's a small medieval city. Right. But just to behold that history while you walk the cobblestone streets of Lübeck is... Car- Carolina, what would be a, an equivalent sort of uh, underappreciated attraction in Germany? Well, I'm a big fan of former East Germany um, that I think is overshadowed too much by Bavaria as much as I love Bavaria. So the areas of Eisenach, the beautiful 
green, hilly mountains of Thuringia and, of course, then Saxony. Where Saxony, you have, Thuringia, Eisenach, uh, yes, famous for Martin yes. Luther. Uh, I yeah. think they are much underappreciated. Beautiful little towns that really worth Eisenach a look. Eisenach is a delightful yes. spot. Holger? Another city that starts with L, like Lübeck, is Leipzig, and that's one of my favorites. Mm. It's about an hour, hour and a half away mm. from Berlin, and it's wonderful. It is kind of like young it's happening it's very like a lot of students there uh, young people and it's very cultured mm -hmm. and not only like it's kind of now where you know it's full of life and you know entertainment and bars but it also has a very very strong history in both in two parts one is music you know johann sebastian bach bach mm -hmm. was actually uh, having like uh, one of his last jobs there as the thomas cantor like leading a choir And he died there, and you can actually visit his grave. So music, it's steeped in classical music. Mendelssohn Bartoli, you can visit his house there. So that's one thing. The other thing is Leipzig's role in the peaceful revolution in 1989, when East Germans got together. Uh, they still call it the, the Heldenstadt, the hero city, because that's kind of where people took to the streets, coming from like a church service, silently walking the streets, and they got more and more and more people every Monday, the Monday demonstrations that led to like tens of thousands being out in the street, making sure, bringing actually the East German government finally down. And that's something that is still gives you goosebumps when you're there and you can visit Leipzig and have this, you know, old time music, but also the modern history right side by side. I agree. Leipzig is, is an amazing place and very, very few Americans go there. Anna is on the phone from St. Paul, Minnesota. Anna, hi. Hello. I recently had the opportunity to see a great exhibit on Luther and the Reformation, and I'm wondering what activities are being planned for the um, recognition of the 500th anniversary of Luther and the posting of the 95 Theses. Mm, I was I was tempted to go to Minneapolis to see that uh, exhibit about Luther, and uh, I understand there was wonderful, wonderful artifacts I would imagine most of those artifacts came from Wittenberg in the House of Luther. People will be going to Germany. All 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the uh, Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. Wittenberg, where Martin Luther um, lived the last part of his life and was a professor and uh, did so much of his work. And uh, it's called the Luther House, I believe. And the artifacts there are just incredible. The other great stop is the Wartburg Castle, where Luther hid out and translated the Bible into German. I was impressed. I was just there last year. Wartburg has a wonderful a little art gallery and museum with some beautiful artifacts. Carolina, do you have some advice? Well, they definitely are. Uh, Luther 2017 is the website to look at. It's indeed a big, big Reformation year. So there will be indeed three major exhibitions. They will be in Berlin, in the Wartburg in Eisenach, and in in Erfurt. And uh, so they are all different. In Wittenberg, we'll have uh, a special exhibition on Uh, 95 treasures and 95 people. So even more artifacts that are now brought to Wittenberg. And then um, in Berlin will be about actually the effects that the Reformation had on the world. It's particularly actually a special section on the United in States. In Berlin? In Berlin, in the Martin Gropius Bau in Berlin. Oh, exciting year, whether you're a Lutheran or not, when it okay. comes to church history. And uh, Berlin, Wittenberg, and Erfurt, Eisenach. Eisenach, and the Wartburg Castle. Those would be mm -hmm. the big five if you're on the Luther Trail. Holger, any thoughts on Luther and, and sightseeing? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's kind of overlooked, like because you have these big sites for Luther, Eisenach and Wittenberg. But for example, Weimar, a lot of the artifacts from Wittenberg were actually kept in the Weimar archive there mm. by the local princes. 
And he also taught in a church in the Herderkirche. And you can actually see the altar, the wonderful, famous Lukas Kranach altar from the 1500s that shows Martin Luther in the famous painting there. And it's basically open to see. It's like all year round. You can just go there once the church is yeah. open and actually have a maybe go and enjoy a service in a church that Luther preached as well. Anna, does that help? Excellent. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I hope you can go to Germany after being inspired by the exhibit there in Minneapolis and visit some of these places. Great. Thank you. We're looking at Germany right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Holger Sammer, Fabian Reuger, and Carolina Marburger. And Louise is calling in from Albany in New York. Louise. Hi. My husband and I are both of German descent, so we spent many trips going to Germany, other places as well as Europe. But our last trip, our son, his wife, and their two daughters were in Bad Homburg for a period of time this past year. So, of course, we wanted to go see them. And my son, who was pretty good at you know, the German stuff, he said, let's go to some really interesting places. He took us to this amazing Cistercian monastery where they filmed the wonderful movie. Oh, the name of the rose. It was the monastery Eberbach, I believe. The history in there is amazing to go through. And adjoining to that is a uh, beautiful, beautiful winery. And it's like no one seems to know about this on the east side of the Rhine. Huh. And that's when we were there. I kept saying so to myself... So now this is Eberbach. It's a Cistercian Eberbach. Abbey at E-B-E-R-B-A-C-H. You got it. And this is actually... Is that it's worth... It's about half an hour, 40 minutes away from Bad Homburg. When I watched that movie, The Name of the Rose, the first thing I thought is... I want to go to this place. Well, you could go. (laughs) Although, I have to tell you, I was so stunned when I was there. I was writing down all of the ancestors who I thought may be one of ours, but I don't think they really are. But I kept writing down, oh, my God, I can't believe in this place. First of all, it's ancient. I mean, the Cistercians, it was ancient. And it's not, you know, it's not done over in any way. It was um, breathtaking. It sounds fantastic. All of these little, but it's also when you see that come and it's real, you say, oh my goodness, this is amazing history. It's like anywhere you go, if there's some kind of connection, as you probably know, that it's like, whoa, this is too much. This is really great. My husband kept saying to me, okay, you finished with this now? You know? But I kept saying, no, not yet. <laughs> All right. Good wine. <laughs> Louise, thanks for the tip. We're going to have to run along now, but happy travels and thanks for sharing Hey, that. thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Take care. Have you guys been to this abbey? Uh, I've, I've, been once, I've been there with my parents a long, long time ago. It is indeed very stunning. It is where The Name of the Rose was filmed. And the the wine is more known these days because you find them actually in, it's one of the upper class wines you find in supermarkets. And Eberbach. it's really excellent. Yes, Ebersbach. Kloster Eberspach. Eberspach. Very yeah. nice. The name of the rose. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Germany with our guides Holger Zimmer, Fabian Reuger, and Carolina Marburger. Carolina, Fabian, Holger, danke schön. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Spoke one German word in that whole interview. <laughs> <laughs>
best-selling author Patricia Schultz is famous for getting us to add lots of places to our travel goals with her book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. She joins us next for a little word association from her recently updated domestic guide, which lists a thousand sites and events in the U.S. and Canada. We'll discover the great things we might miss not far from home and what kind of fun is waiting just a tank full of gas away. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Are you ready for a road trip? Patricia Schultz has compiled a list of a thousand places that are worth a visit in the U.S. and Canada. That's in her latest domestic edition of her Thousand Places to See Before You Die series. Her listings can take you all the way to Nome or New Brunswick, or help you plan a drive across the Everglades or the Badlands. Her directory is packed with all the places she thinks everyone should see, and some of them might be just across the state line. Let's see how many of them we can add to our own life lists right now. Patricia, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. Patricia, you've got such a broad understanding of what there is to see in the United States, and we've got so many delightful places we'd like to see and experience. Let's just play a little bit of Patricia Schultz USA Word Association. I'm going to say something, and you're going to tell me just off the top of your head from these thousand places in your book where you would go to have that travel experience. How about a dramatic view in the United States? You know, I remember my first coast-to-coast road trip during university. We drove to California, and we wound up on the Pacific Coast Highway, and for the first time in my life, I saw the Pacific Mm. Ocean, and I felt like Lewis and Clark. I thought I had seen the most beautiful thing in the world, and I I remember that like it was yesterday. And the the oceanfront highway is just so great all along California. I call it the American Dream Drive. How about delightful road food? You've probably uh, had a lot of road food. What's your favorite memory? I always joke about how I'll stop anywhere where it says homemade pie. And invariably, it's in one of those chrome diners from the 50s that's owned by a Greek family that's been there for four generations. And it's kind of just about anywhere out there along the highway. I had the most incredible cherry pie somewhere near Traverse City, Michigan, which I know is like cherry central. Are homemade pies in diners a dying thing, or do you think that that's alive and well across the United States when you're road tripping? Oh, I think, as is true of everything, it's a dying thing, but you just need to look a little bit harder and further, and um, you need great conviction. You can find anything you want, especially with social media these days. How about the most breathtaking approach to a big city skyline? Oh, well, I've been in New York City since the 80s, and to this day, whenever I drive from New Jersey or I fly in, and I see New York City skyline with our new Freedom Tower, more officially called the number one World Trade Center, on the site of where our Twin Towers once stood until September 11th, when I see that cityscape, I get goosebumps. You've written a thousand different places to see in the United States and Canada. What's a particular gallery or a museum that's kind of funky and and quirky that that really is worth knowing about? I don't know that it's funky and quirky. I like museums that are dedicated to a single artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe on a world level, you think of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. But the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, I've been to, I'm called back to it a number of times because... She was such a fascinating individual. Mm-hmm. And imagine to have an entire beautiful museum dedicated solely to her work, which I love. 
So it's one of the many reasons I love Santa Fe in general, mm-hmm. but that, that museum in particular is a real favorite of mine. There is something beautiful about a museum that's not exhausting, and if a museum is dedicated to one great artist, it's, it's, true. It, it's a more enjoyable experience. So Georgia O'Keeffe, Santa Fe, that's good to know. You've probably spent a lot of nights in hotels, and uh, do you have a particular hotel experience that you, you treasure as much as the reason you were going to that particular place? Oh, like there are a thousand places that are rushing to mind, there's one place in particular, and I hate to keep talking about my immediate backyard when the U.S. is my backyard, but there is a place in the Catskill Mountains, and it's called the Mohonk Mountain House, Mm -hmm. and it's still owned since the mid-1800s by the same Quaker family, who is called the Smiley family, and it's one of the last Victorian rambling wooden mountain hotels that is surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of square acres of state park. And in the autumn time, it is magnificent. There are hiking trails for days. And it's kind of a shining type of hotel with the long corridors and everything is in wood and there are the rocking chairs. It's only about an hour, an hour and a half drive straight due north along the Hudson River, Mohonk Mountain House. As you're traveling, what's the most inspirational Native American site? I love, love, love. I mean, I can't talk about it enough. And in fact, I usually talk about it too much. Um, Monument Valley in the Four Corners area of the Southwest region Mm -hmm. in America. That area to me is the Old West untouched, written in stone, kind of with those incredible rock formations. And it is part of the Navajo tribe. It is owned by the Navajo tribe. And it's massive. It's not a a state park or a national park because it is private territory, I believe. But you've seen it in all of those John Wayne movies, those, you know, Ford Apache and Yellow Ribbon and all of that. And it's just like a postcard. It's Mm. um, there's one road and you can go off road only in the presence in the company of a Navajo guide. Wow, that's that sounds worth worth uh, venturing for. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz about the new edition of her book, A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Patricia's calling in from Coral Springs in Florida. Patricia, thanks for your call. Thank you. I've been heading to Boston and then taking the train uh, with my 19-year-old daughter to southern coastal Maine. I have always wanted to see a part of Maine, so it's going to be a short, probably six-day visit up the coast, but I was wondering if you could give me some suggestions on, you know, anything that is breathtaking and fabulous that we shouldn't miss. From Boston to Portland, Maine. Yes. All of those small towns are so kind of locked in time, and they're very popular, you know, like there's this small window of tourism activity, and mostly in July and August, but also in June, um, before the schools get out, and there's a lot of Lobster fleets that come in and, you know, bring in today's catch that you can have for lunch that afternoon or the evening. There are small museums. The Wyeth family is from there. There are the old schooners you can take for an hour or two or sometimes for an entire day to go along the coastline. And there are a lot of deserted islands that they weave through. It's a very beautiful coastal area. Great blueberry everything. (laughs) Blueberry pie, blueberry ice cream, blueberry jam, uh, a lot of small inns that are historical. It's a beautiful corner of our New England region that is very visited by East Coasters and not so much by the rest of the country. So 
there will be people and activity and a lot going on in a lobster festival in Rockport every July. It's uh, coincidental, Patricia, asked this question because just uh, last October I, I drove from Portland, Maine down to Boston and oh. I've, I've always heard about the colorful foliage and man, it was just explosions of color. And uh, Portland was just, everybody I, I mentioned, I was going to Portland and Maine, they said, oh, you got to enjoy the food. And my hosts in Portland took me out to their their trendy little restaurants there. And there's a wonderful food scene in Portland, a uh, small oh, town. yes, very much with, so. Uh, well, yeah. I, a lot of food. I started looking, at, I planned the Boston trip first, but I think as I decided we were going to do the train, you know, up to Portland and make some stops, I actually got more excited about the main part mm. than, yeah. than... Have fun on your trip, Patricia. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Patricia Schultz has been a travel journalist for more than 30 years. Her bestseller, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, has been providing inspiration for travelers' life lists since 2003. She does this by featuring famous landmarks and lesser-known sites around the world. She gets into more detail on places to see in the United States and Canada in the domestic version of her guidebook, which she's updated with color photographs in its third edition. We have links to Patricia's books with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Amitava is calling from Danville, California. Amitava, thanks for your call. Oh, hello, Rick. Uh, thank you very much for receiving my call. Patricia, I wanted to ask you, what is your opinion about the cliffhanging trip going from Kahului Airport in Maui going to Hana, where Lindbergh is buried, for example, and then I have a comment afterwards. The cliffhanging trip. That's very true. I've always been the designated passenger (laughs) because you see so little of it if you're behind the wheel. I know that there's actually somebody counted the number of turns and viaducts and bridges and waterfalls that you pass. I think it's probably Hawaii's most scenic drive. Um, It's called the Hana Highway, and the cherry on the Sunday is that you wind up in the tiny little settlement town village of Hana itself, which after a drive like that, you really need to stay a night or three or five to (laughs) kind of recuperate. But it's just beautiful. It's lush and it's green and it's everything that we dream that Hawaii is, especially on the mainland, because we have a vision of, you know, how romantic and, and tropical and Polynesianly gorgeous Hawaii is, and you'll find it in, along the Hana Highway. And the real surfing town in Paya, great fishing. Mama's Fish House, I think, is the place exactly. to have lunch or even dinner. I took that trip, and you're absolutely right. It's best not to be the driver, because <laughs> I really couldn't take my eyes off the road. And I knew there was beautiful scenery on the, on the ocean side, but there's equally beautiful scenery on the, on the other side with waterfalls and foliage. Mm-hmm. But Hana itself was a lovely little town. But what I did was, uh, although the rental car company said, don't go beyond Hana, I took some courage, and I continued to drive. There's 11 miles of unpaved road, and it's very narrow, so hopefully you're not on the outside because it could be treacherous. But after Mm -hmm. that, the scenery changes completely on the dry side of Haleakala. It's completely Mm -hmm. dry with arid kind of vegetation, beautiful scenery, and oceans so blue I have never seen it. There's a Kipahulu Visitor Center of the National Parks, and they have interpretive guides where they have the seven sacred falls that come down from the crater. And there were people actually swimming in the pools. The scenery is gorgeous. And, mm. and then ultimately, there are trails that people can go and climb Haleakala from the bottom up, which takes a little bit of wow. time. 
So now I have to um, rewrite my recently released update. Thank uh, you. There's <laughs> always a good excuse for another edition. Thanks, Amitava. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz. She's out with a new edition of her book, A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. And we're playing Patricia Schultz, USA Word Association. Patricia, if you were going to give one town or city the Old World Charm Award, what would that be? I think that Savannah, to me, doesn't seem as commercial as Charleston. Charleston was recently named and a number of times as the number one most popular city to visit in America. And you know what that means in terms of numbers. (laughs) And Savannah is kind of its overlooked sister. And it was spared and not damaged during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And again, the magnificent architecture. I think there are 20 parks, 20 very green parks with fountains and very local friendly. They come with their dogs and their prams and they sit and they mm-hmm. read. And they, mm. it's, it's visually a very beautiful, beautiful city. Again, very hot in the summer months, but in the springtime, there's no more beautiful city. If you were to think of one site that inspired you to get politically active and work for change, what would that be? Well, I guess there's no city like your own. In recent elections, it so thrilled me to see how the people, young and old, in your particular hometown, whether it's Boise or Fort Worth or Miami, South Beach, but what I saw in New York City in November was very heart-touching, that kind of heartfelt coming together of those who peacefully, I don't know about elsewhere, but in New York City, if you can peacefully protest and demonstrate, then you can peacefully demonstrate anywhere in America. And I thought, how great is our nation? You, you talk about the living history sites in the United States uh, in the book as if you really appreciate those. We've got Colonial Williamsburg, the Canterbury Shaker Village, Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts. What is your favorite place for living history? These kind of sites where you go back in time and the employees there are all role-playing and dressed like they were 300 years ago or whatever. Well, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about all of the missions, the California missions along the coastal area, many of them, but not living today, but beautifully restored and preserved and each one very different from the next. But on the flip coast, on the east coast, what you had mentioned, Williamsburg, um, really surprised me in a very positive way because I thought that, again, it was going to be very, you know, Disney-esque. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is to a certain way, but in the very positive sense that there was an incredible amount of money and energy and research and determination to recreate, you know, a history in 18th century America. And the people dressed in costume are very dedicated. They will not go out of character Try as you will, mm. because I did. <laughs> they just I just wouldn't that. buy that, it. That really adds a lot to a site. Yeah. April the 8th, 1804. Honored parents, I am now on an expedition to the westward with Captain Lewis and Captain Clark through the interior parts of North America. We are to ascend the Missouri River with a boat as far as it is navigable. If you were to go to a place in the United States that inspired you to write a poem, have you ever been to a place that just made you want to sit down and and capture the magic on paper? 
I think that the national parks do that because it takes so little. People complain about, oh, there's such a bottleneck and the, the parks are overcrowded and we can only go in the summertime and I don't want to go because there are too many people. It takes so little to just drive the extra half a mile and take a left or park the car and take a, you know, one of the less trammeled mm-hmm. hiking paths. And you're surround- you really, it's you, know, you and nature. It's you alone with this magnificence. In your book, uh, you mentioned Philly food, the food of Philadelphia, the food culture of that city. Not all cities merit a chapter for their food culture. (laughs) Um, What are two or three cities that we should be particularly tuned into their unique passion for food? Well, every city has, if not a food scene, then at least an iconic landmark food that you need to experiment or taste or be maybe a little adventurous if it's not your usual thing. But Rockport in Maine has, you know, this whole lobster fascination. Um, Buffalo, New York has wings. Who knew that Buffalo wings (laughs) really came from Buffalo, New York? Oh, yeah, and there's an annual festival. You know, who knew that you could prepare it in more than one way? But the Philadelphia food scene is close to my heart because I just love the Reading Market. The Amish country is quite close to Philadelphia, and a lot of the Amish farmers come in on a daily basis and have talk about homemade everything. And who knew that shoe fly pie was, you know, tasted so good or what it was really supposed to taste like. They make their mm. own pickles, they make their own everything. So, and then Chicago has an incredible eating scene. Alinea, the the chef, is considered one of the finest in all of America. And then there's a lot more, you know, down-home, relaxed. There's the Taste of Chicago Food Festival, which Mm -hmm. I think is in early summer and is supposed to be one of the finest food festivals anywhere. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Patricia Schultz. Her new edition of A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die is out. And Patricia, let's just finish off our Patricia Schultz USA Word Association with... Is there a place in the country that made you wanted to sing the national anthem more than any other? <laughs> um, I was a latecomer. You're based in Washington, right, Rick? But Seattle. I was a latecomer to Idaho's stunning beauty. I remember we flew into um, Boise, and I called the tourism bureau, and I said, so, like, where should I go? And she laughed, and she said, oh, honey, you can go just about anywhere. And we did. We put over a 1,000 miles on our rental car, and some of those, the Sawtooth, you know, the Salmon River where we went, whitewater rafting, my heart soared. It's just magnificent. God bless America, really. All right. In Idaho. Patricia, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Happy travels. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the details for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app with walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves.